So I'm going to do the Bible reading. So if you guys want to get your Bibles out and flip to Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to be starting at verse 5. That's Hebrews chapter 10, starting at verse 5. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice an offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. First he said, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, Here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he is made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And when these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Yeah. Thanks for reading the Bible. Um, just before we get into it, I, I just want to say keep, keep your Bibles open, uh, keep them there in front of you, because we're not going to be working through one particular passage during each talk. Uh, what we're going to be doing is doing a decent amount of flicking around the Bible, um, and particularly in a few verses that you'll get to know um, over the next while. We're, we're trying to take a, an airplane kind of big picture view of what we're looking at and then trying to anchor that in a couple of places that you can go and dig into um, a little bit later. But I'm just going to pray again before we uh, get into this together. Um, Father God, I just um, thank you so much for the opportunity that we get to hear from you. Holy Spirit, would you push the words of your truth into our hearts? Lord, for those who are lacking confidence and assurance this weekend, would you give them that as they see that they are people who have been not only saved from their sin, but declared holy um, by you. Um, Father God, would you continue to convict us of the areas in our hearts that have yet to um, hear and apply the gospel? And would this be a time where even though we're, we're digging in deep, um, that you use that, Lord, um, to be able to dig in deep into our hearts and, and bring transformation that is long-lasting so that we can keep on journeying to be more like you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. The avant-garde is the, basically the, a concept that was used in medieval warfare and particularly um, referred to um, the battles that you kind of might see if you watch something like Braveheart, right? 
normally um, when medieval battles happened, there were three parts to an army. There was the, the front, the middle, and then the rear. And sometimes they went around the flanks or whatever. But the avant-garde were the people who ran headlong into battle. They were the first people to run into war on the battlefield. And, and, and these soldiers would have been probably the most brave soldiers. They would have been the most equipped fighters. They, they would have been the kind of people that you looked up to and the kind of people that you wanted to be like. And essentially what they would do is they would run onto the battlefield towards the enemy and they would clear the way and set up a position for the rest of the army to come in and progress towards the plan that they had to actually win the war. And, and I don't know if you can kind of visualize what that, that looks like, that you've got two big armies on a field at either side of the field, and, and one group of them are standing strong, and you just see these men charging in, um, and they're charging in, and the thing that they do is they just seem to split up the opposition army, and, and they seem to stand strong. And, and when they can do that, then the others, they come running in and, and then the battles won, especially if it's the Scottish against the English. Um, it kind of feels like they always win. And anyway, that picture and this picture up on the screen is really a picture that when I think about the Christian life, I think about a battle. When I read things and hear the call that we have to put to death the old self and to put on the new and put on the armor of God to enable us to do that, I, I think about a battle. When I read that we are to work out our salvation in fear and trembling, I think about a battle. I imagine a battle, and I imagine a picture like the one behind me where I'm standing there right on the battlefield. And I imagine myself kind of like front and center of the avant-garde, and I've got all of this like, like rage, like William Wallace, you know, in, the, in, in Braveheart to fight against the English, and that I am the person who runs headlong into the opposition and triumphalistically fighting and ultimately winning the war. That's how I picture myself when it comes to the Christian life. But the reality is, that's not who I am. You see, in reality, I get crushed. I get crushed by this call to go to war. I get crushed by the words that I hear from Paul to put off the old self and, and put on the new. And sometimes it kind of feels like when I go through the Christian life that I'm just pushing farther and farther and farther only to be just fighting the same old battles over and over and over and over again. And, and I get weary. I get weary. In fact, I remember in those first two years of me being a Christian, I can remember specifically praying to God to say, would you just take me now? Because you see, I was so confronted by my sin and so confronted just by the relentlessness of this battle, particularly in those first two years of being a Christian, that I just wanted to die and go and be with Jesus because I knew that that would be so much easier. I read a Paul's struggle, right? 
in attaining Christ-likeness that he talks about in, in Romans 7 and, and hearing him kind of wrestling with that. And I just go, man, if somebody like Paul finds this tough, and if somebody like Paul struggles and falls, what hope have I got? And who am I to think that I can be the person who's standing there right in the avant-garde? No right whatsoever. There's times that actually... When it comes to this battle, I've found that, that I'm, I'm definitely not up the front. I'm definitely not in the middle. And I'm kind of not even really at the front or the back. I actually find myself at times just sitting, hiding away in the corner. I'm on the battlefield. I'm kind of there and, and fighting somewhat, but I'm just hiding there's times where I've found in my Christian life that, that I've actually not even been on the battlefield at all. I've just tucked, tailed, and run. I've just decided that it's all too hard. I've just decided that, that I cannot do anything to kind of improve this or to make myself more like Jesus. And I've lost confidence even in the tools that God has given me to do that. The tools that feel like I'm just this pilgrim kind of farmer up against like the Americans with their nuclear warfare. And, and I just have not been in the battle at all. Now, you know what this feels like, don't you? You actually know what this feels like to know that your life as a Christian is one where you are in a battle. Because you feel it. You know that you're in a battle against the flesh. You know that you're in a battle against the old self. You know that you're in a battle against sin. You know that you're in a battle against Satan. You know that you're in a battle against yourself in many ways. But I also know that you want to be more like Jesus. That you actually don't want to be the kind of person who just sits at the back of the battle or actually even just flees the field, but that you actually want to today, if you have the Holy Spirit living in your heart, you actually want to be more like Jesus. You want to be able to show up to this battle, don't you? Yeah, you do. And so this weekend, we're going to be looking at this battle towards Christ-likeness. We're going to explore this thing called sanctification. And what we're going to see is that many of the challenges and much of the thing that you experience is not so much to do with whether or not we are in a battle. We are in a battle, but it's got more to do with how we understand that battle. It's actually in part just acknowledging that we are in a battle, but understanding that battle better. You see, we struggle, I think, to understand what sanctification really is. We, we know about it in a little sense, and we even use the word, we talk about it, we sing about it. But in reality, I'm not entirely sure that we really know what it is in such a way that it impacts the way that we go about this battle, and the way that we go about just living the basics of the Christian life. And, and it's because of that, that I thought that I was the person who was in the avant-garde, right? It's because of that that I had times where I ran away because I misunderstood what the battle was. But what we're going to see over this weekend, and particularly over the three talks, we're going to see that Jesus, right? We're going to see that Jesus is the avant-garde. 
We're going to see that he is the one who has actually rushed headlong into battle on the cross, securing your position towards Christ-likeness. We're going to see that not only did he secure your position towards Christ-likeness, but he actually set up the staging post so that you could progress towards being more like Christ. And particularly progress towards the plan that will actually be perfected. The battle that will actually be won. That you will be made more like Jesus. Because of the work that he has done. Because of the spirit that lives within you. Because of the plan that God has set out. And first up, what we're going to look at today is our position towards Christ-likeness. Towards Christ-likeness is just my way of talking about sanctification. It's us growing towards Christ. But we're going to look first of all at our position towards Christ-likeness. We're going to look at our foundation of sanctification and what it is in the Old Testament. Then we're going to look at the fulfillment of, of that in Jesus. And then finally, we're going to look at what the focus of that is. What's, what, why is that important? So the foundation of our position, the fulfillment of our position, and the focus of our position. So the foundation of our position, um, first up, for those of you who are A-type personalities, you'll see that they all begin with F, right? Foundation, fulfillment, focus. You've got to love that. I do. Um, one, of, <laughs> one, of the, one of the foundations that we need to understand, right, when it comes to um, understanding sanctification is that it's more to do with our position than our progress. It's more to do with our position than it is to do with our progress. You see, we primarily see sanctification as a progress or a process. And we're going to look at that in the next session today, right? But the foundational understanding and the thing that you need to get is that in the Bible, it's got more to do with our position than our progress. And that's exactly what we see in, uh, in the life of Israel, particularly in Exodus 19. So if you turn in your Bibles there, we'll, we'll come to it in a second. Um, but basically what has happened is that once you get up to Exodus 19, around about three months earlier, God has rescued the Israelites out of Egypt, right? And, uh, and they're kind of just sitting here. They've been rescued out of Egypt, and they're just about to have a radical encounter with the God who saved them. And the only problem is, right, this God, Yahweh, is holy, he has been set apart. He is perfect and holy and good. And guess what? The Israelites are not. They're anything but. They're not holy because of sin. And, and because God is holy and they are not, there is absolutely no way, humanly speaking, of course, that they can come into the presence of God. For that to happen, something needs to go down. And we see what that is in verse 10 of Exodus 19. This is what it says. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in sight of all the people. What is it that had to happen before the people could come before God? The people had to be consecrated. Now, the word consecrated here is, is the same word that we get 
sanctify from. It's kodash. Now, I'm not really much of a Hebrew scholar. I don't like mentioning Hebrew or Greek words, but you'll see why that's important soon. But in order for the people to actually come before God, their position was one where the position that they needed to have was one where they were sanctified, where they were consecrated. Now, what does that mean? Well, both in Hebrew and Greek, sanctification has to do with holiness, right? It's got something to do with someone or something being cleansed and consecrated. And I want you to remember those two words, cleansed and consecrated. In this case, sanctification is about people being cleansed from the guilt and the shame of sin and then consecrated for a particular purpose, cleansed and consecrated. And what happens then when they've been cleansed and they've been consecrated, they have then been declared holy. You with me? Now, it's easy to get confused here, right? Because when you read that, it looks like like Moses and the people are sanctifying themselves, doesn't it? That they are the people to, to go through this ritual, So it looks like they are the ones that are deeply involved in their own sanctification. That sanctification is somehow separate to the thing that God did for them in saving them out of Egypt. At least that's what I see when I read it. So they've been saved out of Egypt and God tells them then, this is what it looks like, God tells them then if they do certain things, then they will be declared a holy nation. So they've been saved. It looks like they're saying, hey, do these things. And then after you've done those things, after you've consecrated yourself, then I will call you a holy nation. They will be sanctified. They will be set apart. But I'm not entirely sure that's what's going on here. I'm not entirely sure that God is the one who does this. Well, I'm sure that he's the one who does the saving, right? But I'm not sure about the second bit, that they then do the sanctifying, they then do the consecrating, and that then they are only accepted because of that. Because you see, salvation and sanctification are not separate. They're things that happen together. It's kind of like two sides of the one coin. Now, here's what I think is going on here. Is that the the consecration that they're doing, the things that Moses is called to do, is a ritual consecration. It's a response to the work that God's actually already done. You see, being made holy or being sanctified is for a purpose of drawing near to God. Now, have you still got that passage open up there? Have a look back at verse 4, where God describes the salvation of the Israelites, right? Because this, bear with me, because this is actually really, really crucial. We get this wrong. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. What do you see? The people have already been brought to God, haven't they? So remember before we said that God was holy and the people were not and there was a big problem for them to come before God. They needed to be sanctified. That's what we said. And here, back up in verse four, before we even get to the bit that they tell Moses to sanctify them, we see that they've already been brought into the presence of God, don't we? 
that's not possible without them having been sanctified. That's not possible without them having been cleansed. That's not possible without them having been consecrated. You see, salvation and sanctification are things that happen together. It's actually more to do with our position than our progress. And and when we look at Israel, right, we, we see that this position then is one where they're being declared holy. Not as something that is separate, but something that is part of their salvation. And it's that means, and I want you to really, really get this, that means that it's something that God does, not something that you do something that God does. It's not something that you do. And it's from that position of being declared holy then that the people are to progress towards being holy. It's not the other way around. Like when I first rocked up to church, I thought it was about me being good And that the more good that I was, the more accepted I was for God. For my Brazilian friend who's been rocking up to church over the last while, she got this the wrong way around. She thought that she needed to be consecrated and that she needed to be the person who set herself apart so that God could accept her. But it wasn't that way, and it isn't that way. God's the one who does the saving, and he is the one who does the sanctifying. He is the one who saves you, and he is the one who calls you holy. And it was from that position and then that they are to progress towards that holiness. That Israel were to be a royal priesthood, right? That they were to actually show the nations by the way that they lived who this God was. Their position was the basis for their progress, not the other way around. And we see this even clearer, right, when we look at the fulfillment of our position in Christ. So since that moment in Sinai, even though the Israelites, right, God's people, they, even though they were God's people, even though they were called holy, they struggled to live as a holy nation, didn't they? If you know anything of the story of Israel, you know that they struggled to do that. The sacrificial system that would be efficient to save them and sanctify them and in Christ ultimately was unable to make them perfect It was unable to save them of all of their sin once for all. So they had to keep on making sacrifice over and over and over and over and over and over again until Jesus came. But then when Jesus came, he came into the world to consecrate himself to God the Father by doing his will and offering himself up as an ultimate sacrifice once for all. That's why we read Hebrews 10 before. But if you turn back there, now for a second, to Hebrews 10, and have a look at verse 10, we actually see what the implication of this sacrifice is for us. So Hebrews 10, verse 10. And by that will, it's the will of God, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Do you see it? Do you you see it there? Through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus on the cross, you have been made holy. Now the Greek word is hagios. It's similar to that word kodash. 
But because of Jesus, you've been made holy. You've actually been made fit for relationship with God. Sanctification is more about your position than your progress. Why? Well, because it's not separate to salvation. It's not something that you do. It's something that's part of salvation and it's something that God does. Turn to 1 Corinthians 1.30 for another example of this. Because I really want you to get it. I reckon that this is one of the errors that we make right at the very foundation that means that we often struggle when it comes to this battle. So have a look. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Now, the wisdom from God is the wisdom that leads to eternal life, right through the death and the, and the resurrection of Jesus. And to describe the result of the death of Jesus, right, which is our moment, as we put our trust in that, that we have been saved, right? Paul gives us three pictures. And what are the three pictures there? One is righteousness, that we've been declared right before God. The other one is redemption, which is that we've been delivered from slavery of sin. And then right bang in the middle of those two descriptions is the word holiness, isn't it? Hagios, sanctification. You see, sanctification is not separate to salvation. It's something that's right bang in the middle of it. It's something that Jesus does on the cross. See, we really need to get this because Jesus is the avant-garde. He is the one who rushed headlong into battle for you to secure your position before God on the cross. And because of that, you, if you believe in Jesus and trust in him, have been declared holy. And that's something like your salvation that is once for all. That is who you are. That is your position. And do you know what that means? This is brilliant, right? Turn back to Hebrews 10. I told you we're going to jump around the Bible a little bit. Verse 14. And I just want to read this very slowly. Because I want you to get it. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Now, that kind of picture of perfectness is not perfect in terms of ritual or moral perfection, right? And if you've been a Christian for a while, you know that it can't be that because we suck. It can't be that. But it's perfect as one who draws near to God in relationship and worship. You see where the Old Testament could never make people perfect for worship and relationship with God, the sacrifice of Jesus could. Why? Because he made us holy. 
Because he gave us or imparted to us his perfection and his holiness. And because of that, we can now actually go before the God of the universe who is holy. And not only that, we can call him Father. Not only that, we can walk with him every day of our lives. And if we come down to verse 19, we see again what this means for us. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. We have confidence to enter the most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. And because of that, in verse 22, he says, let us draw near to God. Even though we're not holy, because of Jesus' holiness that he secured for us on the cross, our position and your position, Norway, is one where you can come into God's presence with confidence because you have been cleansed and you've been consecrated. And because that is your position, you have been declared holy. And that's something that is actually really, really secure, right? It's way more secure than thinking that you're the person who is standing in the avant-garde. Because we're not very good in that position. It's only Jesus that can set up that position for us. This means that we can come without fear to God. This means that that our salvation and our declaration of holiness is secure before God at once and for all. Norway, when I, when I think about this battle towards Christ-likeness, and what I want you to see is, and, and I'm going to keep on hammering on at this, that it is something that has been won and be, or has been fought and won for you by your avant-garde Jesus. And in doing that, he hasn't just won your salvation, right? He hasn't. He's also secured your sanctification or your status as being holy. And both of those things are crucial in you having a relationship with God. Here's what this means. This means that the outcome of the battle that you're in is secure. Even though you might fight ongoing battles with your sin, the outcome is guaranteed. The position is secure. Now, there's other things to say about that, and we'll get there. But just sit with that for a moment, because that's deeply, deeply comforting, isn't it? It means that you don't need to be the avant-garde. It means that you don't need to go through the ritual to get to the relationship. It means that Jesus doesn't just save you and set you apart and then you're standing there on that battlefield alone having to be the person who keeps on holding your position. It means that if you're here this weekend and you're worried about how God views you because of your past sin, I wonder if even as I say that, that the Holy Spirit's actually bringing some of those things to the front of your mind. Sitting there, you're worried. But if you trust in Jesus, guess what? 
You're seen by God as holy. That is your position. That is what you're defined by. If you're here this weekend and you're, you're crushed by ongoing perpetual sin in a battle in a particular area that you just keep on struggling with and you cannot work out a way to climb out from under it, know this. Trust in Jesus. Because he has secured your position before God. And because of that, when God looks at you, he looks at you as though he looks at his son. That's crazy stuff. This means that over this weekend, and I hope that God does this for you, right? If he calls you out on something and an area in your life that he wants you to change and repent of, this means that you don't need to be like Adam back in the garden or Eve, right? Do you know what they did? When they heard God's voice calling them out on something, they ran and they hid and they covered it up in a really pitiful attempt with a fig leaf. Adam, where are you? Eve, where are you? When God says that to you this weekend or at any point in your life, you can say confidently, not arrogantly, but confidently, here I am in Christ. You are hid in Christ like we sang in Rock of Ages. Adam, where are you? You've struggled with porn this week again. Here I am in Christ. Eve, where are you? You've struggled again with lust this week. Where are you? Here I am in Christ. Adam, where are you? Your pride has just been bubbling over this weekend. Here I am in Christ. Eve, your anger has just been going off the charts this weekend. Where are you? And you can stand there confidently, not arrogantly, but confidently and say, I am here in Christ. Now, how do I know that God views us this way? Well, come and have a look at how Paul speaks to arguably one of the craziest and most sinful churches in the New Testament, right? The Corinthian church. Um, they were a church where they struggled with all sorts of things um, in their progress towards Christ-likeness, even to the point where someone was sleeping with their stepmom, right? Like, like th this is bonkers. And this is how Paul addresses them. And I really want you to kind of grab this, Right? Have a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. Paul's writing, To the church of God in Corinth, you kind of like sin, sinful, sleep with your mother-in-law kind of people. To those, now I don't want to belittle that stuff. We will get there. To the church of God in Corinth, in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ and called to be his holy people. Do you see it? The foundation of our position that Jesus wins for us is one where we have been declared holy by God through Jesus on the cross. This is not separate to our salvation, but it's something that's essential. 
in our salvation so that we can come to God. Jesus is the one who fulfills all of that for us. He is the one who gives us all of his righteousness. He is the one who um, secures absolutely every part of this for us. Now, we need to also understand the focus of this, right? Because it's, it's one thing saying this is who we are, this is our foundation, um, and it's another thing saying Jesus fulfills that for us. But we need to see why, why that is the case. And in one sense, it's to draw near to God. But remember those two words, and we're going to come back to them again, cleansed and consecrated, the two things that make up your, our sanctification. Well, not only have they been used, or not only are they used to make us holy, they're also used to set us apart for a particular purpose, right? And I wonder if you noticed, as we read through all of the passages that we've looked at, what that purpose is. Well, in Exodus 19, right, the Israelites, and they've been saved um, so that they might be a treasured possession, so that they might be a kingdom of priests, so that they might be a holy nation. Why? So that as they live that out amongst the nations, amongst the people all around Israel, that they might see how awesome and holy God is. And that they might put their trust in him. That they might actually worship him. And as they were brought into this new family, they were to actually reflect those family values, right? So that basically people would see how awesome their dad was. You know, I love it when my kids go somewhere else and they, um, the, the report comes back that they're really kind of like good kids and they were polite all the time and whatever because it makes me kind of feel good and look like a super awesome parent. But then when they get back in our home, then it just all changes. Um, but, you know, like, like actually, um, as the people of God, um, as Israel, that they were to be the kind of people that as they went out, that, that their dad would be proud of, that, that their actions would actually show who this God was. And, and that was really the focus of their sanctification, so that they might know God themselves and so that God might be known among the nations. And in Hebrews 10 um, through 13, we kind of get that, right? It's implied that, that we're holy and, and that we're to live this out in all of life. And in 1 Corinthians 1, we're told that they are sanctified in Christ and Jesus called you to be his holy people. But I just want to finish with reading you words that actually Jesus himself said, right? So if you can turn in your Bible to John chapter 17. Now, just so you know, this talk and the next one are going to be the heaviest and the deepest of the two. And I, I, but, I, but hopefully you'll get to um, reflect on this as you move, move forward. So John 17, verse 15, because this is what Jesus says. About the focus, okay? My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them, hagios, by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. What's the focus or the purpose of the disciples being sanctified? 
It's the same as Israel, right? It's that they might go into the world and into the nations. And, and if you follow on the, some of the arguments in John, you will know that how they are to do that is by being witnesses in the world to God's glory so that the world might know the Father, so that the world might see Him, that they might declare the praises of God who brought them out of darkness and into His glorious light, like Peter says. And Jesus prays that not just for the disciples, right? But for all of those who will come to Him. That they might obey the Father like He did. And as they obey the Father, that they might draw closer and closer and closer to the Father. And as they do that in the world, that people might see how awesome their dad was. That's the focus. It's on relationship with God. It's on how we live out that relationship. And as we do that, as we do that, God is the one who gets the glory. And you know what this means? This means it's not about you. You know, when I look at this battle, it's all centered around me. I want to be the one who's front and center of it. I want to be the one who wins the battles. I want to be the one who gets the glory. But when you look at it like this, it's actually not about you at all. Don't be so stupid to think that it is. It's actually about God and His glory. And I think that's actually really helpful for us. You see, when we're struggling, and when you're struggling in your Christian life, I think when we think that it's all about us, we get so caught up, don't we? In our ability to be able to win that battle. And we don't see that our position is one that has been won for us by Jesus. And I think we end up just curling in on ourselves and, and getting wet. I love reflecting, but we get way too self-reflective. We, get wet, we beat ourselves up way too much. And instead of seeing that it's all about Jesus, we just think that it's all about us. But if we know that our focus in growing towards Christ-likeness is so that we might know God better and that he might get the glory, I reckon that's a way bigger motivation for us to fight, isn't it? It's a way bigger motivation for us to fight. Now, are we, your position is one where, one that Jesus has won for you. It's actually one where you've been declared holy. Your position is one where you have been cleansed and you have been consecrated into service of your Father and your God. And because of that, you can be confident that regardless of how you're going this weekend or how you've rocked up here this weekend, that your progress is something that has been won by Jesus, that it is secure, and then from there, we're going to see that you can progress more and more like Christ in the power of his Spirit. I'm going to pray. And Father God, just um, help us to hold on to the anchor that is your son Jesus. And Holy Spirit, would you and just press these things deep into our hearts, not just as a thing that's in our brain, Lord, but something that actually works out in the way that we live, that helps us to, to deal with the struggles of the Christian life so that we might know you more and so that other people might come to know you because of the way that we live. Amen.